0: You can have a seat. If there's any Club 56 kids, you, you guys can head out. If you've got a Bible, and I hope you do, your phone or whatever, if you'll turn to Ephesians chapter 4. But uh, before we get into God's Word, uh, I want to mention some things to you. And in, in the process of doing that, our uh, greeters are actually going to be passing something out to you. <clears throat> it's It's a chart. And We're going to get, walk through it in the message, but I also hope that it's something that you will uh, take and, uh, and, and use on your own uh, later on, uh, even this week. It's, I hope it's something that you will uh, go over. What I would ask you to do, and maybe if somebody could help Ethan to, to speed it up a little bit, but uh, hopefully, uh, what, what I would ask you to do. And, and I, there may be a little bit of hypocrisy in me asking this, because I would probably not do what I'm asking you to do if uh, the roles were reversed and I were sitting there. I would start reading it, but if you don't mind, if you could just hang out on a little bit until we get to it in the message, so I can kind of set it up. Uh, if you can't refrain, I'm not going to make fun of you or anything, but uh, that, that would just be my, my request. Now... Uh, While they're passing those out, first of all, let me welcome everybody, welcome those that are watching online, and let me say a big thank you uh, to Jim and Sheila and their crew and all the people who were here um, working and their work day yesterday. We had people here for like seven or eight hours. And uh, they just kind of, Philip and I were here working with some pastors. And as we we're walking through, it's like people just coming out from everywhere. And so if you notice that the doors are different back there. And these are new doors, too, and the nursery change is complete And the conference room. Now it's down where the nursery uh, used to be if you need to go to any of these areas. So uh, let's say, I, I, I tell you what, if you were here working yesterday, would you stand up uh, for a minute and let's show our appreciation to them for all their uh, hard work. <laughs> Let me also mention to you the connection card in your bulletin if there's something you need to communicate to us. There is also a sign up sheet for the upcoming discipleship classes, spiritual gifts class, evangelism class next couple of Wednesdays, the Discovering True Life class, or membership class on August the 18th. If you need to plug into that, you can fill this out, turn in the offering boxes. Also, ladies who plan on being in the women's Bible study, they need to know so they can order you a book. And uh, I think a lot of ladies already signed up for that. So you might get, I don't know if it can run out of space or not, but you might need to jump in on that just to make sure. And let me also encourage you as we kind of come near the end of, well, not really the end of summer, but maybe the end of summer without school with the way our school schedule is. That gets started back in a couple of weeks. Let me encourage you, if you're not plugged into a small group, let us help you get plugged into a small group so you can have that fellowship and connection, opportunity to grow. Let me encourage you to be inviting people to church, be praying for opportunities to share uh, the gospel. And uh, let me also remind you that, uh, you know, we don't say a lot about this, but, uh, you know, giving is a part of our worship. That's a part of how we give back to the Lord, how we glorify and, and honor Him. So I would encourage you to do that uh, as a part of your worship. And um, before we get into God's Word, why don't we pray again? Uh, and let's bow together, and encourage you to take a minute and just think of somebody you know that's in a, going through a difficult time right now. I'm sure you know somebody. We have some people here at church that are grieving recent deaths. Sylvia Schnelly's in the hospital. It's maybe one of them, somebody you know. Just encourage you to take a minute and pray for them. The Bible tells us to pray for our brothers and sisters in Christ. I encourage you to take a minute and pray for our nation, for our government leaders. That's something that Scripture commands us to do. I encourage you to take a minute and to pray for somebody you know that's not a believer. I'd ask you to take a moment to pray for me as I deliver this, this message and just pray for yourself that The Lord would enable you to get from this what you need. I I think what I have to share this morning is very important. So let's pray. Father, we thank you that uh, you invite us to your throne of grace. Lord, we ask you to hear and to to answer the prayers of your people according to your will. God, we ask that your Holy Spirit would be our teacher this morning, that he would open our eyes and our hearts, Uh, to see you and to see your truth and to enable us to apply it to our lives and and to live out of what you've done for us in Christ and and, and through the gospel. Father, I pray that this will be a life-changing day today in your presence and through your word and for your glory. In Jesus' name we ask. Amen. All right, so we have been in the book of Ephesians since either the second or third week in January, and we're halfway through. Um, Maybe not even halfway through in the amount of time that it's actually going to take us. But we've covered the first three chapters, which are the doctrinal part of Ephesians. And now today, actually over the next two weeks, we're going to spend two weeks on the first verse of Ephesians chapter 4, which is really the hinge point uh, in the book. And I hope you'll come back next week, or if, if you're out of town or something, that you'll listen online, because honestly, uh, this is one message in two parts, okay? Because I can't really preach for an hour and a half in, in one Sunday, but, but it's really one message. It all goes together. And, actually, I think I preached longer in the first service this morning than I have all year. I think I went over the 50-minute mark, Preston. But, uh, so we'll see what happens in the second service. Uh, but, um, you know, we're wired differently. And some of us, you've probably really, really been into the first three chapters of Ephesians. Like you're doctrinally oriented and like you're, and this is awesome, all these deep truths and that kind of thing. And some of you have probably been waiting around like, give me something practical. And so if, they, if you're the latter, here you go. But I, I will say that the way God has designed it and the way that the New Testament is written under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit is it's really not designed to be either or, it's designed to be both and. It's truth, and then this is how we apply uh, these truths. And so really today, in the next couple of weeks, we're going to lay a foundation for uh, you know, the rest of this book for the commands that we're going uh, to in, in encounter. And uh, really, uh, you, you could look at the, the next couple of weeks as kind of how to live the Christian life 101. Uh, basically, it's kind of spiritual growth 101, something like that. And uh, I, so I would kind of put it to you this way this is the title of the message today. It's So What. But, and here's what I mean. So we've seen in Ephesians that. The Father has chosen us, that the Son has redeemed us, and we're adopted, and we're blessed with every spiritual blessing, and we're sealed by the Holy Spirit, and we're the dwelling place of God, and we're alive together in Christ, that we're the family of God, and all those 20-some things that I pointed out to you a couple of different times, but so what? What does that mean to my life? What do I do with that? How do do I live like this is true? How how does this affect my day-to-day life? How how does this help me forgive the person who's hurt me? How's this going to help my marriage be better? How's this going to help me overcome temptation or uh, overcome an addiction in in my life? Or how's this going to help me with my difficult work situation? How's this going to help me control my tongue? How's this going to help me think better thoughts? Uh, How's this going to help me cope with uh, just pain and suffering and grief and, and difficulties in my life. So what? What, what difference does this make? Or uh, I don't know about you, I, I get this way sometimes, and I actually think this can be healthy, in and, and which I hope this is an encouraging word for you, but do you ever just get really frustrated with trying to live the Christian life? It's, it's like, I'm such a failure at this. I mean and, and, and it's it's worse probably when you 've been to seminary and you 've read all these books and you know all this stuff because like, i love, I know so much, but it just seems like you know I, I fail to 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 live up to it, live it out a, a lot of times and Uh, you know, that can be frustrating. That can be demoralizing. Sometimes people just give up on the whole thing because they're they're like, um, you know, I I just can't do this. And and so what I want to tell you first off today, if that's where you are or you feel or think that way sometimes, that actually may be a great place for you to be. In, In fact, I would say, that if you're really going to walk with Christ, if you're going to live a Christ-honoring life, that uh, one of the first things that needs to happen is you need to come to a place of understanding that you can't actually live the Christian life. Now, some of you are looking a little confused. So let me, let's drill down here, okay? Can you save yourself? Why? Why? You don't have it in you, but why don't you have it in you? Well, you should know this from the first three chapters of Ephesians. I'm not going to have to go back and preach it all over again, am I? Okay, we're not God. Why can't we save ourselves? We're sinful, but why else? We're beyond sinful. What are we? We're dead. A dead person can't save him or herself. So I don't think we're going to have any doctrinal disagreement, we're not going to have an argument or a debate on whether or not we can save ourselves, right? I think we probably have that pretty well established, and and, and most Christians do. Here's where we struggle. This is what I didn't get for a long time. I thought Jesus saved me, but then I lived the Christian life. And what we need to understand is no more than we can save ourselves in our own strength, we can't live the Christian life in our own strength. So let's look at this. Look at what Ephesians 4.1 says, this, this hinge point, this transition point. Paul writes, I therefore, and believe it or not, that word therefore is one of the most important words in this whole letter. I, I therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you to walk worthy of the calling with which you were called. Now, let, let's break this down and look at these words. Okay, the word Therefore. What Paul is doing by using the word therefore is he's connecting everything he's already said to everything that he's about to say. He's saying what these commands that I'm going to give to you are the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. What I'm telling you to do now is based on what God has already done for you in Christ. And so that connects to the idea of this phrase, the calling with which you were called. And and really, this idea of calling is what we looked at back in Ephesians chapter 1, where it says, Outside of time and space, God chose us that we would be holy and without blame before Him in love. God called us, His effectual calling unto salvation. We didn't choose Him, He chose us. He did a work in us to bring us into a relationship with Himself. Yes, we may have responded in repentance and faith, but it was just a response. He was the initiator, and even He gave us the grace to repent And believe it's not something we did on our own that we can take any credit for he called us and so i think this would include uh, like we said before the father choosing the son redeeming the holy spirit uh, sealing he's saying based on everything god has already done for you this is what you do now okay and so he says i therefore the prisoner of the lord he says beseech you which is interesting Uh, he was an apostle. He could have commanded them. But the word beseech means to plead with. Almost to beg, to encourage, to to exhort. It's kind of like if you've got a 17-year-old at home, you still have authority over them. But the wiser thing to do uh, might be, in some cases, instead of commanding them, to teach them, uh, share wisdom with them, and plead with them to do what they ought to do. That's kind of what Paul's doing here. Um, So, he's pleading with them to do this, to walk worthy of the calling with which you were called. To walk worthy of what God has done for you. Now, Think about walk. You know, walking in a physical sense. I'm walking right now. I'm moving. Walking is an ongoing action. If I stop, I'm no longer walking. Now I'm walking. And in a symbolic or a metaphorical sense, in Scripture, in the New Testament, walk is often used to represent a lifestyle. It's our daily conduct. So Christianity is not a Sunday thing. It's a walk. It's a lifestyle. It's a daily thing. So basically he's saying, he's pleading with them and with us to live our daily lives in an ongoing way, live in a way that's worthy of the calling with which you were called. Live in a way that's worthy, live up to what Christ has done for us, our practice matching our profession. The word worthy is a really interesting word here. It's the Greek word "axios," and it literally means to balance the scales. If you think of some old-timey scales being balanced out, or I kind of think of it—you think of a seesaw. You know, and a seesaw can be like this, can be like this, or it can get balanced out and be like this. And so, what what it's saying is is if our uh, you know our position in Christ, if it's up here and we're not walking it out. It's down here, so that's what the seesaw looks like. Now, our position could never, or our practice could never be here, and our position here, I mean, position may be here, and it may be here, or here, or here. He's saying, balance it out. Your position in Christ, walk in a way which your uh, practice matches up to, your position matches up to what Christ has done for us. You say, how could I ever do that? Well, remember, when we talk about spiritual growth, we're talking about the theological term as progressive sanctification. We don't arrive until we're glorified. We're secure because we're justified, but it's an idea of ongoing growth, and we'll talk more about that next week. But sometimes, now here's the thing. You can hear something like this. I mean, I saw it in some of your faces. like, you're just like heaping bad news on me. I mean, you're telling me all this stuff that Jesus has done for me, how he's been uh, good, so good to me, and I'm supposed to live up to that? How could I ever do that? I mean, uh, and, and, and I understand that response. I, I, I think about it like this. I'm going to give you an illustration, and you're going to have to work with me for a minute because I'm going to have to give you some background for it to make sense, okay? So... Um, you know, a lot of you know my family, some of you don't, but my, my wife's uh, Robin, we've been married for 29 years, we have three kids. And so, you know, we have Lily, who'll be 15 later this month, uh, Molly, leading worship today, be 21 uh, later this month, married to Nate. Then we have a son, Jay, who is 24, who lives in Nashville. And uh, he, he's living in Nashville because he wants to make it in the music Business and he, you know, is producing some independent stuff, playing some on some stuff at some gigs, that kind of thing. But his day job, he's a technical director of a uh, a theater, and then he's also doing the same thing part time at, at, at a. Church at a a campus of Brentwood Baptist Church, but the way he got both of his jobs, the contacts were through a a guy whose name is Doug. Who, when he was a student at MTSU, through a a, a friend of ours named Becky Thurman that some of you have met, she got them together, and uh, Jay did an internship with Doug. He's he's a sound engineer. He 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 got an audio production degree from MTSU, and he did an internship in uh, Doug's studio. Okay. Like I said, I'm giving you some backstory, okay? That's kind of the backstory. And uh, so, you know, Doug has been a big blessing in, in, in his life. Um, you know, he's a, a fine Christian man, seems to be. And, you know, so he trained Jay, and Jay would work in a studio, and, uh, you know, he'd be chief flunky head gopher sometimes. Sometimes, you know, he get to work on stuff and, and this kind of thing. And so, you know, Doug has his own uh, studio. You know, when you think of studio, you think of control room and, you know, a uh, room with, where people set up and play and just, you know, the massive sound console and, you know, the acoustic treatments and, and, and all this uh, kind of thing. And so hang with me, we're going somewhere with this. But so when, when Jay graduated from MTSU, uh, he uh, wanted me and I wanted to meet Doug and, and I wanted to share my appreciation, uh, you know, for the way he worked with Jay and, 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 been, and been a blessing. And so while we were down there for his graduation, we, we got to go to Doug's studio. Well, beyond meeting him and being able to say thank you to him... Uh, there, there was another carrot for me to be able uh, to get to go uh, and, and, and be in Doug's studio. And, and, and that is, uh, during the time that, that Jay was working with him, and, and Jay got to be in the studio for one of these, and one of these uh, he, he didn't, um, Doug, through some mutual contacts, landed like, um, I, well... He had had mixed a Bruce Springsteen record before, but then he landed, along with that, probably like the biggest jobs he had ever had in his career, and and one of them was doing strings for three or four songs on the last U2 record. The other one was somebody who's even bigger than U2, which there are not many of those uh, that uh, we were sworn to secrecy on, and I don't know if it's released, so I better not say uh, a name. Now... That person, I didn't care anything about, not a fan. Now, if if you know me, you know I've been, I'm really kind of over this because they came out in favor of uh, an abortion amendment to the Constitution in Ireland. I can't really quite stomach their music right now because of that, but for a long time, been a big U2 fan. So, Doug was going to play for Jay and I the rough mixes of three or four U2 songs that were going to be on the record that almost nobody in the world had heard yet. OK, so like if, if you're a fan of a band and you had an opportunity to hear some of their music before it was released, you'd think that was pretty awesome. Right. So, so I'm pretty excited about it. And, um, you know, it, it was a great experience. And, you know, you hear these songs and actually like those rougher versions other than the final polished in my opinion, overproduced mixes of them because, you know, what had happened? Now, he had never met you 2 never been in the studio with them. You know, all this is done digitally now, and they send what they call stems. I don't, you know, I just know the word. I don't, you know. I can barely play the radio, but, you know, I, I'm just telling you what they said. But, you know, so, so basically, they're recording wherever they're, Ireland, wherever they're recording. And, you know, they would send him digitally the mixes of it. And then he brought this uh, small string section into the studio and recorded them. And they, like, double and quadruple the parts where it sounds like an orchestra. And, you know, and then they mix all of this uh, together. And so, you know, we're sitting in Doug's control room perfect environment to hear music. All the acoustic panels, you've got this stuff that's recorded at at the highest level and, you know, have headphones on and listening to this music and it, it was as amazing as you would picture it to be. I mean, it sounded so good and it was an awesome experience. There was only one problem. At some point... Shortly after that, maybe even uh, during it, I realized, I mean, I kind of was like, I don't ever want to listen to music again. It's never going to live up to this. It's it's never going to be this good uh, again. I I mean, you compare that to, um, you know, listening to music in my car stereo, or compare that to, you know, listening to my, you know, I'm at the gym. I'm listening to music with my earbuds from my iPhone. I mean, it's, it's a completely different thing. And I think that's sometimes how we feel about the Christian life. We look at Jesus and what he's done for us. And, and, and we're like, man, this is so perfect. This is so awesome. This is so great what he's done for me. And then at some point we realize I'm never going to live up to that. It's never going to be uh, that good. I mean, my iPhone Christian life, my car speaker uh, Christian life is never going to measure up to control room version of Christianity. And, and, you know, sometimes I think what we do, we try to lower the standard. We, We try to bring the standard down to where we are. You know, we're supposed to come up to... that. That's axios. That's how we balance it out. We come up. But sometimes, if we're struggling coming up, we bring it down. And we kind of compromise on God's Word. And we uh, you know, act like parts of it aren't true. And we'll talk more about this next week. But that's what people do, right? We deny parts of the Bible that we don't like or uh, that, that kind of thing. Or, or, or sometimes... Sometimes we just despair and give up. Or sometimes what we try to do is we try to be more and more religious. And, you know, here's the thing. I could have gone home and, and, and I could have gone to wherever you go. You know, you're in parked beside somebody at the red light. And um, they have a car that's worth about $400 with about $3,000 worth of stereo in it. You know, they got the, the, the amp. and the, I mean, it's just thumping. I could have gone home and done that, but it still wasn't going to measure up to that control room. And, and sometimes I think what we do is we work harder and we try harder and we try to be more religious and we try to do more and we try to do everything that we can do to measure up to that standard, to who Jesus is and, and what he expects of us, uh, we, we get more religious is what we do. But the problem with religion is religion leads to one of three things inevitably. When we do well at being religious, it leads to pride. We think we're good and we think we're better than other people. When we struggle with living up to those religious standards, it leads to despair Or it can lead to hypocrisy where we act like we've got it together and we really don't. So, walk worthy. Live... This is who Jesus is. This is what he's done for you. Live up to that. You say, how in the world could I ever do that? And listen, I, I'm, I'm not saying we're ever going to get there until we get to heaven. That's glorification. But the idea of sanctification is that I'm progressively more and more becoming like Christ and living more and more obediently and becoming more and more of who he wants me to be. And I'm not saying that's always going to be up and to the right. That may, be, uh, you know, look, may look like a roller coaster uh, sometimes, maybe a lot of the time. But we're making progress. We're we're coming up to it. We're not trying to bring the standard down to us. We're coming up to it. But how can we do that? How can we live this out? So I want to give you a statement. And and, and this, I'm going to amplify it. but, But this is really the message for the next two weeks. I hope at the end of two weeks you can quote this statement. Uh, to me, this is a summary of how we live the Christian life. The spiritual growth uh, 101. How to live the Christian life uh, 101. And here it is. We live out what Jesus expects of us by living out of what Jesus has done for us. I think that's Ephesians 4.1. I think that's the message of the New Testament right there when it comes to our sanctification. Does that statement make sense to you? We live out what Jesus expects of us. That's walk worthy. By living out of what Jesus has done for us. That's the calling. That's that's Ephesians 1 through 3. That's everything that's happened. Now, we're going to kind of divide that in half and, and focus on half of it today and, and half of it next week. And we're actually going to look at the, first, the second half first because we got to get the second half, I think, to actually be able to put into practice the first half. What, what we tend to do is, is we want to run and think, I do this, 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 and this. No, we got to live out of what Jesus has done For us, how do we actually do that? Well, I want to give you four statements, and uh, we'll spend the most time on the first. So, if if we're kind of camping out in the first for a bit, don't think we're going to be here all day because we're not. It'll take more time than the other three put together. Okay, so here's the first statement I want to see. I want, want to say to you that if we're going to live out of what Jesus has done for us, we have to see the gospel as the means of our salvation and our spiritual growth and if you're looking on the screen you're looking at your notes and you see and in all caps that's not a typo that's intentional I think most of us I mean we talked about this at the beginning We got no issue with seeing the gospel as the means of our salvation. Jesus, the only way to God, and that kind of thing. I think somewhere along the way, a lot of us, I did this. I think it's very common in East Tennessee. Somewhere along the way, we got the idea that Jesus saves us, and then we live the Christian life. And that's not what the Bible teaches. The gospel is the means of our salvation and spiritual growth. Uh, J.D. Greer says, and, and, and you're going to hear a lot from J.D. Uh, Greer in this message. If you want to listen to some awesome preaching, he's preaching through Romans right now. Summit Church, Raleigh-Durham. Find it, listen to it. Uh, it's some of the best stuff I've ever heard uh, in my life. I've preached on Romans. Really, we ought to take it off the internet and put a link to his sermon series on Romans there. It's, it's so good, okay? But he says this, and this is so good. Think of it this way. Most evangelicals see the gospel as merely the entry right into Christianity, the diving board into the pool. But the gospel is actually both the diving board and the pool. As we grow in awe and worship of who God is and what he's done for us at the cross, we begin to serve God humbly. So, so that's what I'm saying. I think that's what Paul is saying here. The gospel is not the diving board that gets you saved and then you move on from the gospel. The gospel is the diving board and the pool. The gospel is everything. Everything comes back to the gospel. Everything comes back to the fact that Jesus died for our sins and rose from the dead, and we died with him and in him to sin, and we're now raised to walk in the newness of life, and we live out of that. and, And someday, because of this, he's going to raise us again physically with a glorified body. That's everything. Everything connects back to that. In fact, I would say this to you. Well, that's question first. You ever heard somebody say something like, well, you know, Jesus saves us, the the gospel saves us, and and, and that's the milk. Now we need to move into the meat of the word. Or or, or something like, you know, we're saved, but now we need to go deep. You ever heard that? I, I think that's pretty common preaching. Can I just tell you, If you hear a pastor say something like that, my pastoral advice for whatever that's worth would be, i get up and walk out. I wouldn't listen to the rest of the sermon because it's going to be legalism. It's misguided. If one of your friends says that to you, I'd encourage you to take the Word of God and show them that the gospel is everything. It's not just the diving board. It's the pool. Think about it uh, this way. Um. Well, I'll just share my experience. You know, I became a Christian when I was nine. Somewhere along the way, and, and, and this, I mean, even went into early years in the ministry. Somewhere along the way, and I don't know if I was taught this, just came in my own head, uh, some, probably some combination of the two, but I had this idea that, you know, Jesus saves us completely, but then, you know, the Christian life is me living for Jesus. The, the, the Christian life is, you know, I got to do this and this, and if you don't do this, and, you know, if you don't do these certain things, you do these certain things, you hang around with the right kind of people, you listen to the right kind of stuff, you watch the right kind of stuff, you go to church enough, you read the Bible enough, you pray enough, so on and so forth. Anybody know what I'm talking about? Anybody tried to live that way before? Anybody been in that church before? And, and here's the thing, it, it, it's subtle because there's things God commands us not to do, There's things God commands us to do. If you're going to grow in Christ, you need to be in church worshiping. You need to be in the Word of God. You need to be praying. He who walks with the wise will become wise. All those things are true. But here's what we're missing. They are neither the means nor the end to spiritual growth. Jesus is both the means and the end of spiritual growth. Those things are just means to the means and the end of actually knowing him and growing in him. Does that make sense? You can do all those things and miss the entire point of it. You see, the Christian life, J.D. Greer puts it this way, and I I think he's right. It's not me living for Jesus. You ever heard that? Like, okay, now that you're saved, go live for Jesus. I may have said that before. If I ever said that to any of you? I repent and apologize publicly. That's not how we live the Christian life. That's heaping, uh, that's putting a burden on people that we can't bear. We can't live for Jesus in a way that measures up to what we're talking about in Ephesians 4.1. Can't do it. We're either going to lower the standard, we're going to act like we're doing it and be hypocrites, or we're going to despair and give up. Can't do it. So it's not, the living the Christian life is not me living for Jesus. Or or sometimes, and this is an improvement, but it's not quite there. It's like me and Jesus. And and, and here's what people do sometimes. It's kind of like, they're going along and and they're trying to do it and they're living the Christian life and they're doing the things they ought to do and then, you know, of course we're, we're in a battle with the world of flesh and the devil and sometimes you know we feel like we're getting beaten up by the world of flesh and, and and the devil and it's like it's starting to overwhelm us and then we turn to Jesus and we cry out you know Jesus save me it's kind of like a tag team wrestling match like we tag Jesus in and Jesus you come and you beat them up and then you know we, we tag back in and you start doing our thing again and that's better but that's still not it I mean, it's not me trying to do it and then get, getting Jesus to bail me out when I'm struggling to do it. That's not living a Christian life. Living the Christian life, the analogy that J.D. Greer used, he talked about, uh, you know what a paddle boat is. You know, it's got the pedals and you know, a little boat and you're like, uh, you know, you're pedaling across the lake. And he talked about taking his young son out there who's, you know, and, and you know, he's, he's like, he's pedaling, but he's letting his son kind of pedal too, but his feet really can't even barely reach the pedals and he thinks he's pedaling but he's not really making any contribution to getting them across the lake and he's pedaling and he's telling his dad where to pedal and where to go and and JD Greer's pedaling hard and they're going back and forth across the lake and 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 his son is you know basically like look where what I'm doing look where I'm taking us and he's like he's, my son is doing nothing I'm the one that's supplying all the energy and all the power here that's moving us along that's a better picture of what the Christian life is we may be pedaling we may be doing some things, but it's really Jesus who's peddling and supplying the energy and and, and the power. The way to live the Christian life is not me for Jesus. is not me and Jesus. It's Jesus living in and through me. If I was going to boil the Christian life down to one verse, and I'd encourage everybody to memorize this verse if you don't know it, Galatians 2.20. I have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life that I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. You know who the only person who can ever live the quote Christian life is? It's Jesus. He's the only one who ever lived an obedient life. We don't have the power on our own to live an obedient life. If we're going to live an obedient life, it's going to be Jesus and the power of the Holy Spirit living in and through us, empowering us and enabling us to live the life that God wants us to live and to be the person that God wants us to be. It's the only way it's going to work. Now, I'm not saying that there's not some effort and some action involved on our part. We're told to walk. We'll talk about that side of this next week. I'm just saying, if it's actually going to happen, I'm not going to accomplish it. It's going to happen by Christ in me. It's me living out of what Jesus has done for me. So we see the gospel, not just the diving board, but as the pool. Now, if you pull out your chart, here's why where, here's where I want to show you the chart. So, so think back to the analogy that I gave you about listening to music in Doug's control room. And if you'll think of that as the gospel, like I said, I could have come home after I'm like... It's never going to sound like this again, and and, and I could have bought uh, you know the car speakers and you know home. I could have had John uh, Harrell come in and gone into debt and got you know this home stereo system and all these kind of things. You know, think of that as religious effort. A lot of times, what we do is we we know we're saved by the gospel, but we try to be sanctified by our religious effort. That's what that's what I'm saying. That's my testimony. That's what I tried to do for a long time. I said, you know, you're saved by the new covenant, but I was trying to live in a lot of ways by the old covenant. And there may be some of you that you're doing that, but some of you may be trying to save yourself to get right with God by your own religious effort. So what's the difference between uh, religion and the gospel, and how does this practically affect our lives? Well, uh, Tim Keller has written this, and... He's really good. So think about acceptance. Religion says, if I obey God, God will accept me. Every religion on the face of the earth, other than true biblical Christianity, says some form of that. If I obey, if I do this, this, and this, if I follow the religion, if I'm good enough, if I do whatever, God's going to accept me. But if not, God is going to reject me. Now, here's how it applies to spiritual growth. You may say, well, God's accepted me in Christ. But some of you are saved, but you feel rejected because you don't think you're performing good enough when your acceptance by God is based not on your performance, but it's based on Jesus' performance. You see, the gospel is this, that on the cross, God... Treated Jesus like he had lived my disobedient life, where he now treats me like I live his obedient life. That's grace. Now, that's not an excuse for sin. We're going to talk about that aspect of it next week. But the gospel says this, I'm accepted, therefore I obey. I don't obey to get God to accept me. That's bondage. I obey because I am accepted. That's freedom. I'm empowered by the work of Christ in me to do what he's actually called me to do. Listen, if we're trying to keep the law and make ourselves right with God by keeping the law, that's the very essence of legalism and religion as opposed from the gospel. Listen, there's nothing wrong with the law. The law is perfect. But the law's purpose was never to save us. It's to show us that we're sinners in need of a Savior. And it has 100% perfectly accomplished that purpose. Think about motivation. In in, in religion, motivation is based on fear and insecurity. How many times have you, quote, done something for God... Because you were afraid, if you didn't, something bad was going to happen. That's bondage. Gospel motivation is, I get to serve God. I get to worship God. I get to minister in the name of Jesus. I get to know Him. I get to go to church. I get to spend time with Him because He's been so good to me. It's not out of fear and insecurity trying to earn something from God. It's out of joy and gratitude in response to God. Think about obedience. I obey God, religion says, in order to get things from God. How many times in your life you try to make a deal with God. I'll do this if you do that. How many times you made vows to God, promises to God? How many times you broken them? I have a lot. You know something that I do not do anymore. I don't. I don't make promises to God. I'm not living my life based on my promises to God. I'm living my life based on the promises he's made to me that are all yes and amen in Jesus Christ. Listen, you don't have to negotiate with a father who has accepted you and who loves you and who's working all things together for your good, who is with you and for you. You don't need to try to make a business deal with him. We don't obey to get... Things from God, we obey to get God. That's what this is all about. It's about knowing God, it's it's delighting in Him, wanting to resemble Him. Think about circumstances. You know, before I understood this, when when, when something went wrong in life, when there was some kind of challenge or difficulty or, or, or problem, my first thought was, What have I done wrong? Or is God mad at me? Because thinking religious and thinking legalism, and, and, and you know, we're all different. Some, my, my default mode is to be a Pharisee. Like, some people's default mode is to go, you know, be wild and immoral and those kind of things. My default mode is to be a Pharisee. So I may struggle with this more than some of you, but some of you have the same default mode. Some of you are recovering Pharisees, right? Um, I mean, that's what I am. Um, so, I mean, and, and when you think that way, it's like if, if something goes wrong, you feel like God's against you. I mean, you know, when, when we had a miscarriage and then, you know, M- Molly has the, the heart problems, like, God, what have we done? You know, why are you mad at us? Now, Now, I, I still like life to be smooth and happy and everybody to be healthy and things to go well. But now... I expect some bad things are going to happen. It's life in a fallen world. But when it does happen, I may struggle. I may not enjoy it. I may not like it. But I don't assume that I've done something wrong or that God's mad at me. I assume that he loves me, that he proved it at the cross, that he's working all things together for my good and my life is not dependent upon my circumstances. It's very freeing. I mean, think about criticism. L- listen, you want, you want, here, here's a good test to know how religious you are. How much does criticism bother you? Because if you're religious, a lot of your self-image is bound up in how people perceive you. Now, I'm not saying any of us enjoy Criticism. There's probably something wrong with you if you like and you go to the point of enjoying criticism. But, but listen, if your identity is rooted in Christ, if you feel secure and accepted in who you are in Christ, here's the thing about criticism. You don't have any need to be real defensive. You can learn from it. I'm not saying I always do this, but I, I've grown a lot in this. I mean, I still don't like to be falsely accused. But even with that, I've come to the conviction: if somebody falsely accuses me, they're actually just accusing me of the wrong thing. You can find something to criticize me about. Don't go make something up. If you need something, just come talk to me. I'll give you a list, or go talk to Robin. She'll give you a longer list. I mean, because it's just there. So I'm I'm not here anymore to pretend like I've got it all together. See. The thing about it, in Christ, we know that we're sinful and saints at the same time. And and so we don't have to defend ourselves. We can just proclaim the grace and the goodness of God. That's that's our identity. It's who He is and what He has done in us. And so criticism, it it may sting, but it doesn't have to destroy us. You know, prayer. Prayer. Is our prayer life just about getting something from God? Is it just about getting God to bail us out of a jam? Or is it about just spending time with God? Is it consistent? Are we praising God? Or do we just go to God whenever we need something? Uh, Think about confidence. This is so powerful. When when, when we're religious, our confidence alternates between two poles. If we think we're, we're, we're doing what we ought to do, if we're being good at being religious we tend to be proud and judgmental and self-righteous. When we're not living up to our standards, we tend to despair and be upset. But the thing about the gospel, this is one of the things to me, this is one of the most amazing things about the gospel. Tim Keller says this, and he's exactly right. Is only through the gospel can a human being be humble and confident at the same time. You know, when Jesus talked about being meek, it means strength under control. It's humble confidence, and it's what the gospel produces in us. Why? Because if the source of our confidence is inside of us, we're going to get proud. But if the source of our confidence is outside of us, if it's in what another has done for us, that leads to humility at that point, because we're giving him the glory, not ourselves. There's just a security in that. Listen, if all this is true, we don't have to go around trying to prove ourselves and please everybody else in the world. We've got an audience of one. This is so freeing. The, the gospel is not just the diving board, it's the pool too. And so our identity becomes based on who we are in Christ. We don't have to wear this mask of trying to look good to everybody else. So I, I would encourage you to take that chart this week. Think about it, meditate on it, pray about it, ask God to speak to you through it because it, 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 your spiritual growth comes from not being religious, But seeing the gospel as the means of not just our salvation, but our spiritual growth as well. Now, let me hit the others quickly. Second, the second statement I want to give you we live a new life out of a new heart. We live a new life out of a new heart. See, religion says we change on the outside. The gospel says God gives us a new heart that enables us to live a new life. Uh, The theological term is what's called regeneration. You want to boil it down? Remember when Jesus told Nicodemus to be born again? He was saying, that, that's, that's what regeneration is, to be born again, for God to make us alive spiritually, for him to give us a new heart, a, a new nature. Look, look at how Ezekiel 36, 26, 27 puts it. And, you know, I mean, this is in the Old Testament, but this is a, a great picture of the Christian life. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. I will take the uh, heart of stone out of your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and then look what happens and cause you to walk in my statutes and you will keep my judgments and do them. How do we walk this out? It comes from having a new heart. It comes from having the Holy Spirit in us. It's not in our own strength and effort. This means we have a new identity. We have a new master. We have a new nature. And so out of this, we have new desires and we have new affections. And listen, the way we think and what we want determines how we live our lives. In Christ, we have the mind of Christ and we have a new heart where our deepest desires and our deepest affections are toward Him. Now, doesn't automatically mean we're always going to do the right thing, but that's what we live out of. You say, I mean, what does that mean practically? I mean, you think about the questions I asked at the beginning. It means when we face temptation, that we have the Spirit of God in us and we're actually dead to sin and alive in Christ and we can claim that and we, can, out of His resurrection power we can you know, say greater is He who's in me than He who's in the world. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me and in His power resist that temptation. If someone hurts you or harms you or wrongs you and you're angry about it, you can forgive that person because you've been forgiven. You can extend them grace because you've been given grace and that Spirit of grace and forgiveness, the Holy Spirit is in of you, enabling you to do that as long as you will believe that and rely on Him and in His strength choose to do what God has called you to do. How can this transform your marriage? Well, if we have the Spirit of God within us and we have a new heart and we have the love of Christ in us, we can live out of that and it can spill over into how we treat our spouse instead of which means we can repent of our selfishness and more and more show the love of Christ to them because that's who we are and that's What we're living out of. It's not something that just that we ought to do, although we ought to do it. It's not just something we're striving to do because we ought to strive to do it, but it's something that we want to do because we're new. We're changed from the inside out. That's the gospel. Religion's the outside in, the gospel's the inside out. Number three, we realize that the Christian life is not behavior modification, but it's life transformation into Christ-likeness. It's not behavior modification. It's life transformation. Judd Wilhite says this. He says, most of us don't want changed lives. We want changed situations. Isn't that true? You know, we joke around here uh, sometimes at True Life that like me and Shane never cry. And uh, like Rusty and Preston say, cry all the time about everything. Neither one of those are fully true. Well, other than Shane, that apparently is true. But uh, um, (laughs) I I, I do cry occasionally. But but here's the thing. Sometimes it may not come out outwardly, but I'll be honest with you. Sometimes being a pastor breaks my heart. And one of the things that breaks my heart is sometimes you'll see people, maybe they'll they'll come to church, they'll come back to church, they'll make a profession of faith, they'll... um, you know, they'll make some changes in their lives. They'll kind of uh, turn to the Lord. But sometimes you just know it's not going to last or you see that it doesn't last. You say, you know, why doesn't it last? Does it not work or whatever? And what it is, they were using God. There, there was something in their life they were trying to fix or there was a situation that they wanted to change. You know, one of the saddest things that that I've seen a lot is you'll see women who have been through difficulties. And maybe been mistreated by, by men and just kind of struggled in life. And, and you'll see them make a profession of faith and, and, and their lives will begin to change. But then at some point, they decide they need a man again. And then you just kind of see it go downhill because they'll go back to their previous patterns. They'll pick the wrong guy. He'll pull them away uh, from Jesus. And, and see, here's the reason that that never works. God's plan is never behavior modification. Or God's plan is never situation transformation. God's plan, his one and only plan for our lives, is life transformation into Christ likeness. And you know why we struggle with God a lot of times? I mean, if we're honest, we got one plan, he's got another plan. His plan is you become like Jesus. And he's going to use trials and difficulties as a part of that. Our plan, a lot of times, is no trials and difficulties. Healthy, happy, everything smooth and easy in the way that I want it to be. But you know what? God says, Romans 8:29. For whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son. 2 Corinthians 5, 15 says that Christ died for all, uh, that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and rose again. God's plan for my life and your life is for us to surrender to the Lordship of Christ and experience the freedom of that and so that he can transform our lives instead of us just trying to give him bits and pieces of our lives to get from him what we want from him. That's never going to work. We're always going to butt heads with God when we take that approach because our plan and His plan are running diametrically opposed to one another. At that point, you know, it, it, you may say, "Man, surrender." I don't know, really. It's the most freeing thing in the world. I mean, David Platt. This is exactly how he says it, but he says it something like this: that it is good news that uh, I can surrender my life to Jesus, that I can give Him control, and that should make me happy. Why? Because I've messed my life up so much. I mean, I'm running in the ditch. I'm running off a cliff. I mean, if I give him the steering wheel, he's going to lead me down the right road. We need this. That's the idea. We need Jesus to be in control. We need our lives to be transformed. And listen, that's an ugly, messy, painful process. But it's the best thing that can ever happen to us. It's not going to be easy. And like I say, it's progressive. We're talking about spiritual growth, not spiritual arrival. The only way you're going to arrive is to die or Jesus to come back. We're talking about growth. It's a lifelong thing, but it's worth it. Last thing. Fourth statement is we keep our focus on Jesus. Jesus and what he has done for us. Now I want to try to tie this together, make it practical and 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 give you something to take home with you this week that will help you to live this out, okay? So, I know I've gone long, but if you if you hang in there for about 5 more minutes, I think this will be worthwhile. And you know, Hebrews 12:2 tells us to fix our eyes on Jesus. It literally means to stare at him. In in 2 Corinthians 3:18, uh, the, the Bible talks about when we look on, gaze on uh, the glory of the Lord, that we're being transformed into his image by the spirit of the Lord. Uh, J.D. Greer's put it this way. He says, the fire to do in the Christian life comes from being soaked in the fuel of what has been done. You know, we, we talk about being on fire for the Lord. What he's saying is what he got on fire for the Lord is to focus on the Lord and the gospel and what he has already done for us. You want to have revival in your life? Just keep going back to the cross. Now, so how do we actually, though, live and say, okay, uh, if, I, if I'm going to grow, if my... Um, Practice is going to more and more match up to my position. If I'm going to not try to lower the standard, but I, I'm going to move towards being more of who God wants me to be. And, and, and okay, so this comes out of, uh, you know, living out of what Jesus has done for me. It's, it, it's, it's through the gospel. It's because I have a new heart. It's not behavior modification. It's life transformation. I need to focus on Jesus. You know, how do I actually do this in my life? okay. If you got a Bible, let's go to Romans chapter 6. And we're going to close here, and I'm just going to try to boil this down to, to something real practical. All right? And, and there's, if you take notes, or even if you don't, I, there's three words I encourage you to write down, okay? And um, we'll see these in Romans 6, and, and this will tell us what to do with this. And, and, and listen, the reason I say this is so important Is because I want tomorrow for you to be able to get up and enjoy Jesus instead of living under the burden of the law. I don't want you to feel like you have to try to lower the standard to try to make it in the Christian life or to give up on living the Christian life, but to realize that Christ is in you, and if you'll let him, he will live through you. And we're not going to be perfect till we get to heaven, but we can more and more grow and become like him. And, and we can live in freedom. We don't have to live under this religious burden. We can have a new identity and just a new approach to living life if we get what the Scripture is saying to us here. That's why this matters. I want us to have and to live and, and enjoy that freedom, not live in the bondage of religion. And, and, and some of us, for a lot of our lives, have been taught the wrong way when it comes to this. right? Some of you grew up in churches that taught the exact opposite of what I'm teaching today. Is that true? So, Romans 6, write down these three words. Know, reckon, which may sound a little strange, but we're in East Tennessee. We should be used to that word. It's a little different usage today, though. Know, reckon, and surrender. Know, reckon and surrender. Let's walk through this. So in Romans chapter 6, Paul's talking about sanctification. It's probably in more detail what he's talking about in Ephesians. And so he's told them how that the God declares us righteous by grace alone through faith alone. And so he's anticipating an objection. And he asks this question, what should we say then? Should we continue in sin that grace may abound? Because that's what some people say, right? If there's grace, You know, just go do whatever I want to do. And Paul uh, responds in, in English, New King James. It says, certainly not, which is actually a wimpy translation. It's literally God forbid. Ain't no way is what he's saying. It's the strongest term of negation in the Greek language. Certainly not. How shall we who died to sin live any longer in it? If you're dead to it, how do you keep living in it? Now, notice that over the next few verses, the use of the word no. He repeats it three or four times. There's something, there's something we need to know here, right? Uh, my people perish for a lack of knowledge. What the, I mean, you, you can ruin your life with a lack of knowledge. Uh, or do you not know that as many of us as were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? Therefore, we were buried with him through baptism, not water baptism, spiritual baptism being placed into Christ. Therefore, we were buried with him through baptism into death, that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we should also walk in newness of life. Jesus died and rose again. We died with him and were raised again. For if you've been united together in the likeness of his death, certainly we shall also be in the likeness of his resurrection. Here we go again. Knowing this, that our old man was crucified with him, that the body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves of sin. For he who has died has been freed from sin. Now, if we die with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him. Here we go again. Knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, dies no more. Death no longer has dominion over him. And if we're in him, by extension, us either. For the death that he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life that he lives, he lives to God. So what do we need to know? We need to know that Jesus died to forgive us of our sins, and he rose from the dead to give us eternal life, but that also in Christ we died to sin and have been raised up in Christ as a new creation to walk in the newness of life. Do you know that this is who you are in Christ? Now, that's not even the good part. The next verse is going to be the key. That that is a good part. But a lot of you know that. Here's where we miss it, though. And, and, and I'll give J.D. Greer credit for this insight, but th- th- this is the key. A lot of you are like, okay, I know that, but I don't feel it. Or how do I experience it? See, a lot of times we try to feel our way into spiritual growth. We, we, maybe we feel God sometimes, and sometimes we don't, or you know, we're looking for some kind of experience or, or, or whatever. That's not how you grow spiritually. That's not how you get sanctified. Verse 11 is how you get sanctified. Look at what it says. It says, Likewise, you also reckon yourselves to be dead indeed to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Now, reckon. It's a Greek word logizomai. It's the counting term. It means to place to one's account or to consider something to be true. So, in salvation... Now, now listen to this, please. Two minutes. In salvation... God reckons us to have the righteousness of Christ. He, he takes our unrighteousness and reckons it to Jesus, and takes His righteousness and reckons it to us. But I want you to notice something here: the use of the word "reckon" is not in, this, in, in Romans six eleven is not something God's doing; it's a command of something for us to do. And so, what is He saying? He's saying that when it comes to our sanctification. Because, see, the work's already been done. Not just for our salvation, but for our sanctification. We're dead to sin and alive in Christ. The work's done. Know that. But you have to reckon. You have to consider it to be true. You have to place it to your account that you are dead to sin and alive in Christ. Christ. And so here, here's J.D. Greer's insight. You ought to write this down. What that means is just like we believe our way unto salvation, we believe our way into sanctification. We believe our way into spiritual growth. You don't feel your way into it. You don't experience your way. Into it. So here, here's what it means practically. You get tempted, but then you know that you're dead to sin. You're alive in Christ. And you consider that to be true? That means I don't have to do this. I have the resurrection power of Jesus Christ in me. You go through a difficult situation, you're hurting, you're sad, you're emotional because you're a human being made in the image of God. But you don't have to despair, you don't have to give up. Why? Because you're dead to sin and unbelief in your life, and you're alive in Christ, and He's alive in you. And we can do all things through Christ who strengthens us. Greater is He who's in us than He who's in the world. Listen, the more we get into the Word of God, the means to the means, and know who Jesus is, and know who who we are and begin to claim this and apply this and live according to this, Jesus rises up in us, and He empowers us, and He enables us, and He lives through us to make us more and more of the person that He's made us to be. We believe our way to spiritual growth. But then we also, last thing, surrender our way to spiritual growth. because, see, we're dead to sin but sin's still fighting against us. We'll talk about this next week. We've got two natures. That's why this is a battle sometimes. But he says, Therefore do not let sin reign in your mortal body, that you should obey it in its lust. And do not present your members as instruments of unrighteousness to sin, but present yourselves to God as being alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. If we really want to live this out and experience it, it comes from daily surrender to Jesus Christ. So he can practically be in control of us. Listen, what that verse is saying, we're going to be somebody's slave. We're either going to be a slave to sin or we're going to be a slave to Jesus who will set us free. And so that's why, like I say, Jesus is the means and the end, but the means to the means is getting up in the morning and spending some time with Jesus and getting at His Word and claiming His promises and praying and confessing sin and asking Him to fill you with His Spirit and asking Him to be in control and asking Him to live through you. Because if you're not doing that, you're trying to do it on your own and sin's going to kick your butt every day of the week when that happens because we have all the power to live this out, but it's not automatic. It's when we let Jesus be in control of us, day in and day out. That's when we walk with him. It's not a Sunday thing, it's a walk. It's Jesus and the gospel, not just for salvation, but for sanctification. Let's bow our heads.